Yes, hello everyone, and welcome back to the Number But the Brave podcast. I am Hal Schwartz, and as always, I'm here with my great friend Flynn McLean. So, Flynn, we got a lot going on, and highlighted by a pretty amazing archive release earlier today. Uh, yeah, very hot show, very hot show, Atlanta '78. We also got uh, from my home to yours, and earlier this weekend, we're in the midst of uh, album promotion time for for the for Letter to You, which is which comes out just in about a week and a half or so. Yeah. Well, it's going to be a very exciting time period, and let's start with the archive. I actually was a little surprised they went back to darkness this quickly. It's a magnificent show. It's the fifth of the five broadcasts from that year, and now they're all expended. We haven't had a Born to Run show in a while. We, of course, haven't had a Magic show in a while, and I thought this maybe could be the time for a Vote for Change show. I don't know if this is a symbol that Vote for Change is afflicted with the same problem that The Rising has, where they can't access the shows. But taking the show for what was released, A-plus, magnificent, <laughs> can't get any better. All right. Well, I got a few points to, to respond to there. Go right ahead. <laughs> okay. First off, it has been uh, 10 months since, since they released The Darkness Show. And their pattern is basically one tour per calendar year. And so... We, we, yeah, we got both Winterlands in December of 19, and 10 months later, we, 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 get, we get Atlanta. So that's really not, that's not too far off their usual schedule. And I, I don't know if the Vote for Change Tour has the same problem as the Rising Tour. That would be, be really disappointing, but maybe they just don't want to deal with, with the rights issues. I mean, go having to go to all those different artists that's and saying, true. you got to sign off on this, you got to sign off on this. Especially so if they just, wanted to release the Jersey show, not only is Ed on there, he, they obviously played Better Man. Although, of course, they always include the covers anyway, so I don't know that that would be a super big issue. Well, I just think it's the, just a matter of the artist signing off on it. I mean, they have. To, I mean, Eddie Vedder does have to say, yes, I consent to being included on this release, no? I do believe that is the case, but I also will go out on a limb and say <laughs> that it will take about five seconds for Ed to approve that should they want him to, it would well, be my guess. Well, about everybody. I guess for, for the Jersey show, it would only be Jackson Brown. I don't think there's anybody else, right? I, and I and Jackson was on the Christic release, so he obviously approved that. Hmm. All right. Well, maybe it's just one step that they don't want to deal with, no matter how simple it is from, from our point of view. And yes, you're right. It is. This is the fifth of the broadcast, the last one to be released. Um, there, there are still two more multi-track shows, at least that we know of, in the vaults from from the Darkness tour. The first is the the third Passaic show from right. September, and then Berkeley from was it June or July, where they re, they recorded some stuff for the King Biscuit Flower Hour at the time, and and there was talk about some kind of EP release, if I remember correctly for those two songs for prove it in paradise so they haven't really totally blown their load fully yet from 78 and they they also may have phoenix where the where they did the filming for right. uh, for the for those videos so i wouldn't say it's they've really uh they still got some some gas in the tank left all right well i mean let's talk a little about the show magnificent performance i the mix is really good on this one i know some people complained about the 1216 winterland mix and particularly i think how it was mastered i didn't really agree as fully with that but uh, this one i do think from just sampling it today and i got through a lot of it not all of it but it, it's a very high quality mix i thought so well al chiller did a really good job here well i was one of those who didn't didn't have much criticism for the for the mixing or mastering of twelve sixteen from last year, and but I will say that I do hear a significant upgrade in this mix than I did uh, on that second Winterland show. It's it really just pops out at you. I mean, what a version of Prove It All Night! It's insane. Oh God, yeah. Oh God, yeah. Well, this is the situation where where there is recording bias, in my opinion. The other, this is the fifth broadcast, as as we've said. Three of them, the Agora, Winterland, and Passaic, were pretty much legendary vinyl bootlegs at the time, and then obviously in the CD era as well. And then you got the Roxy in there as well, which was never an amazing tape, but it was still pretty strong for, for a broadcast. But then with the Atlanta show, there was, legend has it, there were thunderstorms across the southeast, so radio reception wasn't, wasn't the best, and so therefore there was never a, a high-quality recorded home recording of it so it kind of got it was kind of like the bastard stepchild of of the of the darkness broadcast but 
now that we have it in this perfect quality, I think it's going to get some major props. I mean, I already consider it better than Winterland. I'm sorry. But oh, I, I don't know about that. I mean, just as a set list issue, Winterland has the fever. It has, uh, I'm trying to th- think of all these set lists they're flowing around in my head, but the Winterland <laughs> set list is really great. And and the 919 set list is pretty great. Great. I'm not taking any way, anything away from this show. This is a really great show <laughs> and a very powerful listen. And we'll debate until the end of time which of the five radio broadcasts is really the best one. But I think I would still have to put my money at this moment on Winterland. I'm talking okay. about 1215. Right. Okay. Well, I think we finally have equal footing for all five of the broadcast so that it can be we can listen to all five and say, okay, which one is the best performance? Because that's the only, that's the only difference. And and even then, it's there's such, so such small differences in, in in that respect. I mean, I think you pointed out to me that the radio broadcast Bruce brought a little something extra, and I think that's hundred percent accurate. Of course, this does have the only performance ever of Night Train. It, it's very nicely done. I don't know for me if that makes it like. Uh, a super special <laughs> event or anything like that, but it, it is always, of course, nice to have the rarities. Well, it's a it's it's a cool song. It's, as you said, it's not something I'll be queuing up too much, but it's got a cool little groove, and it'll be fun to hear when uh, when listening to the show. But as you said, it was such an amazing prove it. The racing I thought was was tremendous, and he when he did the I love the segue from from racing the thunder road talking about the this is a this is a land of peace love justice and no mercy and the sign said thunder road i just i just love that i get chills every time the opening of the show is really good too good good rocking tonight and i I like the dj opening that always adds a little bit of color for it to me and just just makes me feel more in the moment like i'm there yes for sure because you know i like to feel like i'm in the room and and that these shows should recreate the experience from the night that it happened. And I think including the DJ like that very much does adds to that. Yes. I think this one absolutely makes you feel like you're, you're in the room. Just the, the crowd is just mixed perfectly. I know I've, I've, I'm not very critical of it when it's either too high or too low, but this one I think is really in the sweet spot. It totally is. And I'm sure most of our listeners have already bought it or they're planning <laughs> to buy it. But if you haven't, this is a must listen for sure. Yes. hundred percent agree. Let's move on to From My Home to Yours. And as I was saying in our last episode, to me, he's creating a mood with these later episodes of the radio show. They're not quite as fiery as when he was doing the politics and and when he was talking to Steve and to Southside, as I said last time. And here again, he, he has created a mood, a mood of the road. It's a mood of the car. And I enjoyed it. I enjoy listening to them all. I don't know that there's that much to say about it. Do you have any thoughts? I, I agree with you 100. percent I just want I just want to say that I I wish he had played the the Mark Cohn version of uh, Silver Thunderbird instead of instead of the cover by Joe D. Messina. I'm just such a huge fan of of Mark Cohn and that that debut album of his, of his is one of the best albums of all time. I'm going to go ahead and say it, and his version is just perfect. Now, interestingly, I did catch that he played uh, the Flesh Tones, Ride Your Pony, and I actually did see Bruce perform that song at the House of Blues set (laughs) where he played with the Sacred Hearts that has never uh, appeared anywhere in any kind of bootleg format. And uh, it, it was interesting to me that that came up because... It's the only time I think that we know that he's played the song. We'd have to go back and, and check for sure. But it, it's burned into my mind. And when it started, I was like, oh, yeah, that was that was a special night. Oh, very cool. And I thought the inclusion of the Ballad of Thunder Road by uh, by Robert Mitchum from the movie of, well, the, the movie Thunder Road was was pretty fitting, too. I never heard it. And so it was very cool to hear. Yeah, of course, that went into the Sessions Band Open All Night, <laughs> which... Which went into Jack Kerouac's "On the Road" excerpt, excerpt one. So yeah. he did. He did. He did bring in some out, outside sources for for some of the in between uh, talk. And he did uh, play his own "Brothers Under the Bridges" eighty three. Now, did you catch what he said before that? And I don't know. Maybe I didn't hear it clearly. I only listened to it once. He said, "Like this was my earlier take of the song, or something like that," implying. Sort of that there was some kind of connection, I thought, to the later brothers under the bridge. 
But well, of course, they I don't are they connected? I don't hear them connected at all. And I think he he did reference Brothers Under the Bridges '95. That, um, I I thought he did. Right, and so I I didn't I didn't really hear any connection between the two. I don't think he I think he just referenced the titles being being identical. I okay. I maybe I maybe I need to go back and re-listen, but that's that's that was my take on it. Yeah, because I've never believed there was any linkage between those two songs. I mean, lyrically, even in the tone, they don't they don't seem very related. No, not not at all. Very different songs. And the show was called My Kingdom for a Car. And of course, he concluded with his own drive all night, which seemed extremely fitting. <laughs> yeah, for a show called uh, My Kingdom for a Car, Bruce easily could have done 90 minutes of his own stuff. So, But he really kept it uh, It was eclectic. Light. Yeah, very eclectic. I never knew what a hoopty was, and, and now I know. <laughs> Thanks to Bruce and Sir Mix-a-Lot. Now, we haven't talked at all about the release of the last single, Ghosts, and we'll save that, I think, for the record Right. Uh, yeah, let's not gonna... let's not go too much into our thoughts about the various pieces of letter <laughs> to you until it's complete. And now also we're going to get and everyone else is going to get the movie on the 23rd, which will be on Apple TV plus. Right. So I guess I got to sign up and for my free free week trial and watch it so I can discuss it fully with you. Yes. And they would appreciate for the people who do sign up for a week trial that you pay for a month or so. But that's their hope. That's why they're paying for this exclusive content from Bruce. <laughs> but Well, you know. considering how much my wife and I don't stream anything on any service, I uh, don't think even a month would be worth it. <laughs> uh, enough on Apple TV Plus. And let's move on to our main topic, which is the magic record. As we know, at the beginning of the century, Bruce was quite busy. He did the reunion tour. Then he did the rising tour in 2005. He released devils and dust in 2006. He released the Seeger sessions record. And then in 2007, completing a trifecta of truly different records, he released with the e street bad magic. And that's what we're going to be talking about tonight. I just listened to it last night for the first time in a while straight through. And it really sort of stunned me. I, I, I think I forget how great this record really is. Yeah, I remember at the time, first time I heard it, I was less than thrilled. But certainly over time, I, I've, I've come to absolutely love this record. And so many of the of the themes in it obviously resonate to this day. And certainly the fact that it has, it has such a, a tight narrative. Um, yes. Going all through the record from the intro of Radio Nowhere, the guitar intro to Radio Nowhere, all the way to the, to the beat of the drums on, uh, on Devil's Arcade. I totally agree. And he did, unfortunately, have to put Terry's song at the end because Terry McGovern, his longtime assistant, I think that's what we would call it. He, he was basically a jack of all trades. He did a lot of stuff for Bruce and and he was a great guy and he knew a lot of the fans and he always treated us well. Terry, unfortunately, passed away and Bruce wrote a song that basically served as a eulogy for the memorial service. And then he wound up putting it on the record. But I think you and I both agree that the, the narrative as it's contained really does end with devil's arcade. Yes. Yes, it does. It's great to have Terry's song on there, but the album was done when, uh, at the time of Terry's passing. So that's the way I kind of look at it. And then Terry's song is, is, is basically a bonus track. So we're going to get into the individual tracks. I don't think we've done one of these in a while, so I'm kind of looking forward to it. What do you think? Well, I think the last one we did, well, I know we did The Rising, I know we did Devils and Dust. Yeah, Devils and Dust, I think, was the last one. Okay. so And, uh, and, and appropriate, although we're skipping the Seeger sessions. <laughs> no <laughs> oh, comment. Yeah, we are, no. Well, at one point we'll discuss it. It may not be a track-by-track -track discussion like these no. other that are all Bruce Penn songs, but... Uh, We'll do it eventually. I'll, well, it I'll twist Hal's arm to do it. It doesn't really fit in with our thesis because he didn't write any of those songs. So, right. And as we're about to get into here, starting with Radio Nowhere, these are songs, of course, that he penned, and they all fit together in a very tight package. Some of these songs have been have been written towards the end of the Rising Tour, so they've been kicking around for, for a little bit before. Obviously, at the end of the rising tour, Bruce went off, as you said, to do devils and dust and secret sessions. So it came back to this and the songs fit. I was, it's basically uh, life in the time of Bush and the Iraqi war. And but it is so relevant for 2020. It really, <laughs> as I was listening to it, I was just like, 
holy cow, did he really nail this in terms of seeing the future? He really was living in the future. Uh, yeah, he he nailed it perfectly then. I, and things then, I mean, looking back at it now, it seems kind of quaint, but that's where he was going for, and that cer- it certainly fits now. So let's start with Radio Nowhere, which I have to say is one of my favorite tracks in terms of a first single that he's released in this reunion era. Normally when a song comes out, sometimes it takes me like the rising. I really had to absorb and more recently letter to you, which of course I would not put in the category of the rising, but that one also, it took me a little time to warm up to, and it felt familiar, but radio nowhere from the first moment, the first listen, I was all in on radio nowhere. Uh, In fact, it's one of the first songs I learned to play on guitar (laughs) and uh, what a great track this is. Yes. uh, As you said, it grabs you from the beginning. When he comes out with the guitar lick on the beginning of that song, you know you know Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band were back. And again, as you as you said, they were basically basically had been off for at least three years. Uh, I mean, if you include the two weeks of Vote for Change in 2004. So he is basically announcing his his return or their their return with with a major a major rock sound and a major rock song. Is there anybody alive out there? And that, that was yeah. the question. Well, and what's fun about it is that I think it came a little bit out of Steve complaining, as Bruce t- told Hyatt in his book. <laughs> Steve was just sick of the keyboards dominating the E Street Band sound. And Bruce basically wrote this track and said, OK, you want guitars? We're going to go with guitars. And it is a hard driving song. And as you said, the the key lines is there anybody alive out there? You can speculate or we can bounce back and forth what I what the song may be about in, in its most extreme interpretation. And, and Brian writes this in the book. It, it could be about an apocalyptic landscape. I actually would not agree with that. But I think what it is is in so much of other Bruce's material, it's about searching for life here on Earth and searching for connection. And if you, you think about it early in the song, he says, I just want to feel some rhythm and later in the song, he switches it to, I just want to feel your rhythm. Most of Bruce's material does does try to do. He's searching for a connection here, and it's very evident. And that's, and that's one of the reasons it's so strong as a single. He was announcing, again, that he was back, and he was hoping the audience was going to be back, and, and they were. And, of course, it became the, the most frequent opener of the tour. So it's, it announced... Each show as well. The album really is set up well by this track. And even though if you listen to Radio Nowhere and you listen to Devil's Arcade and didn't really think about it, you'd be like, okay, these are just totally two different tracks. They're not related, but yet they really sort of are. In this one, he's he's searching for rhythm, as I just said. In the live versions, often before Max goes into the final breakdown, Bruce would yell out, I just want to feel... This is about finding feeling, and Devil's Arcade, of course, is also about finding feeling after the narrator of Devil's Arcade, and we'll get to that later in the show, (laughs) but goes through this horrific experience and returns to real life, we'll say, and has to find himself and, and again, find connections and the beating heart factors in there as well. Right. Well, you you said it well. It's, It's in both songs, they're trying to find some kind of connection. In Radio Nowhere, the guy, the narrator, is sounds like he's driving somewhere, and as you said, some kind of dystopian nightmare. But he's searching for something, and he feels lost. He's just a number, another number in a file, and that's always an interesting, uh, interesting metaphor that he uses there. But he's looking for something. He's lost, but he he wants to find it, and that's and as you said, that's basically what happens in Devil's Arcade as well. In Radio Nowhere, to take it a step further, he's driving through a misty rain, searching for a mystery train. Bruce <laughs> told Hyatt that the train really represents what everyone is looking for. And and he really gives you the answer there. But it's also contained in the song, I think. Right. And of course, in, in, in Hyatt's book, he also called that one of the most Springsteenian lines uh, Bruce, Bruce ever wrote, going from a, a misty rain to a mystery train. So I like it. <laughs> Yeah, no, it's just an outstanding track. And and to this day, whenever he plays it, it really does fire people up. I remember that first night at Mohegan, I thought the show was dragging a little, and, and maybe Bruce did too. I saw him audible to Radio Nowhere, and just right away, it, it just 
pick the crowd up and it's just really an amazing song and and if anything it should be played more often but of course we say that about so much these days well i what i will say is that too much of the magic album was pretty much left left behind when he got to the working on a dream tour in 2009 Uh, i think radio nowhere was the only one that was somewhat consistent at least until the end of the tour and i wish I wish more songs other than just Radio Nowhere were in there from the get-go, and, and they should have been, but uh, that's that's another discussion for another day. <laughs> yeah, and let's move on to You'll Be Coming Down. Speaking of songs that don't get played, this song has only <laughs> been played once ever in the entire history of the E Street Band. But hey, the guy got a great recording of it, so uh, hats off to him or her. Yeah. Uh, you're talking about uh, oh, you're talking about the audience recording. Yes, I'm talking about the audience recording oh. from the Columbus 2000 2008 show. Okay. Just clarifying for <laughs> our audience. Well, you know we have a we have a secondhand dialogue going on, so it's a, a really interesting song in the sense that it's so popish, and in terms of how it fits with the rest of the record, if you're trying to put the pieces together, you wouldn't really see it with long walk home but i do think the threads are there so let's talk about that all right well i'm interesting interested to hear what you think the threads are and you'll be coming down i want to hear the threads and then well I'll just, and, and I'll brian give you my talked a little about this and brian talked about this a little in his book to, it's a commentary on the time and the decade so it, it all sorts of fit together with what was going on in the bush administration and i think sort of the excesses that were going on in the country now ironically and of course Bruce couldn't have known this when he wrote it in 2007 or 2006, whenever the song was written. But if you really think about it, The Apprentice debuted in 2004. Okay. And all these reality shows, I think this song is really sort of referencing the Paris Hiltons of the world, the Kim Kardashians. That's to me how I read it, that your your head spinning in diamonds and clouds, but pretty soon it turns out you'll be coming down. Uh, maybe I'm, I'm overreaching there, but to me, it does seem to be a commentary on, on those themes, which were going on very heavily at the time. I mean, that was right around the time, I believe, uh, the Hilton and Kardashian sex tapes came out. You know, it, it was about getting fame or getting famous, I should say, really for <laughs> for doing nothing in, right, in a yeah. way. Yeah. I mean, that's basically what Paris Hilton and Kim Kardashian did. They were famous just for being. Is there a reason for them being famous other than their sex tapes? I mean, come on. Um, but uh, I, but that, I don't I don't know the answer to that. In all honesty, <laughs> would they be famous had that not happened? My guess is they would not. But who knows? <laughs> exactly. And so I think that's what the song ponders. There's like the great line about it. You'll be fine as long as your pretty face holds out. And then that's for sure. Yeah. But then you're going to find out it gets pretty cold out. And that's kind of that's basically kind of what happened to, to Paris Elton and some others. And and even at the, the Bush administration at the time, once some of the the image went away and that the reality set in of, of what was going on in New Orleans and, and, and Iraq, it's. They turned against them, and we can kind of draw a parallel to that now. Oh, I think you're right. They definitely took a fall, the Bush administration. And, and of course, I also believe that ties into the next song, which is Living in the Future, a song that has a third verse that begins with Election Day. And at sundown, quote, you come walking through town, your boot hills clicking like the barrel of a pistol spinning round. I'd say that's pretty relevant right now. I would say so. And the lyric I really like from this song is about my ship Liberty sailed away on a bloody red horizon. The groundskeeper opened the gates and let the wild dogs run. To me, that uh, that was a little bit more explicit for what he saw as some of the the civil liberties that had been trampled in in his opinion. And I guess kind of in mine and not kind of in mine as well, that the Department of Justice was doing in terms of their anti-terrorism efforts. But think about the verse that I just read, even in connection to 2020 and waking up on Election Day as it comes up in a month from now. It's it's pretty scary that he nailed it to that extent, I, I think. I mean, like, obviously, he would have never known in 2007. Uh, nobody knew what was going to be <laughs> happening, you know, in 13 years later. But he, he really, as I said, when we when we introduced the topic, he really did sort of uh, live in the future and nail this one. Well, just to, uh, to connect that on on the on the morning of November 9th, two thousand sixteen, my friend David emailed me and, and my wife like with that exact line about woke up election day, skies of gunpowder and shades of gray, and 
Yep, nailed that one. Now, I really have to say, even though I do think as I was listening to the record, I gravitated to this one a little bit more. Living in the Future was always my least favorite song on this record. It just, to me, sounded a little obvious. It certainly sounded, you know, sometimes when Bruce goes to try and capture that old E Street sound, and here he's clearly doing so, it just sounded a little generic to me. And also, even though I'm talking about the power of the lyrics. The lyrics just, they never grabbed me in the way some of the other songs on this record did, especially something like Log Walk Home. Okay, well, sometimes when Bruce is less than subtle, it, it doesn't work quite as well. Um, we can talk about just, I'm jumping ahead here, but the song Hey, hey Blue Eyes that he released on the American Beauty EP uh, in 2014 was originally written for this album. And, and you can see, had it been on this album, it would have been way too blatant. And so, yeah. but this one is still quite a bit more, you know, illusions and, and, and a metaphorical than even than Hey Blue Eyes. So, yeah, I agree with that. It just, this is one of them, as I said, that just was never one of my personal favorites. And I'm sure some people feel differently about it, but it just, like I said, it felt a little too obvious E Street with the way the sax came okay. in. And yeah, I, I don't know. It, it, it To me, there's much more pleasing songs on this record. In fact, as we get to the next track, <laughs> that's certainly one of them. Right. Yeah, I can certainly see where the, I mean, he really seemed to have gone out of his way to make Clarence just so featured on this one. And and I love Danny's Danny's organ licks on this one too, to be honest. And I don't think and I don't think that is that's as obvious as as Clarence's stuff. No, no. But but as a, and as we transition into your own worst enemy, this is really sort of a perfect track. It's interesting that he it really didn't get played much. No. It did pop up occasionally when he was doing acoustic songs. I think mainly before he played with Grishecki. But this has never been a track that he seems to have particularly focused on. And and I think it's an outstanding track. I mean, his vocal is outstanding. The manner in which the song is arranged, I think, is outstanding. And, and it really is underrated. It's definitely one of the more melodic songs, certainly of the last of the last 20 years. And it's one of the songs that, along with uh, I'll Work For Your Love, that I get the feeling Bruce wrote, in the in trying to sing in the voice of Smokey Robinson that he talked about at the uh, at the storytellers when he back in 2005 when he sang he said I he sang Sunny Day basically trying to in, impersonate Smokey Robinson and I I feel like this is one of those one of those kinds of songs yeah this is much more I think the Beach Boys than say like yeah. a Smokey Robinson especially with the clanging bells at the beginning and I I do like the clanging bells at the start it gives me a sense of danger I don't know why but there the entire song has sort of an ominous tone to it and it definitely is about society that is teetering on the edge okay well I I associate the bells with church bells and I still haven't totally figured out where that goes in with with the theme of the song for me, there's a the strings in the song kind of have an undercurrent of, of of foreboding, which obviously goes goes along with the with the lyrics of the song. Oh yeah, and if you think about it again, <laughs> coming at it from a 2020 perspective, when I was listening to this the other night, and he got to the line at the end, everything is falling down, <laughs> and I was just like, and I think that's how he felt, obviously at the time he wrote it as well. But it, it it is, I don't know if he's, so much of his material, as we often talk about, does stand the test of time. But just because of the very specific circumstances he was writing this record, and at its core, it's not obvious, but we know it's there as fans and, and from reading the lyrics, there is a political aspect to it. And, and again, it's just sort of bizarre that as we're having this conversation, these themes are just so damn relevant now. Yes, they are. And the line or the he described in the in Brian Hyatt's book or he was quoted in, in, in Hyatt's book about, you know, we all have the the seeds of our destruction and the seeds of our creativity or, or seeds of survival. And that was something he 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 talked about when introducing Leah on the Devils and Dust tour. And there's certainly a lot of that in the hitter. And. It's it's an interesting interesting theme that that he continued into into this one. 
You know, the other line that strikes me from this song, once the family felt secure, now no one's very sure. And I, I think that so many people in this country feel that way at the moment, especially with the virus going on. Look, he, he has a knack for these things. And, and somehow he, he, he did seem to foretell the future here. Yeah, he's kind of a seer in that way. <laughs> It really is true, and and it sounds kind of corny, but he's telling the American story at least the way he sees it. So now let's move on to to Gypsy Biker, and I got to say this is one of my uh, one of my favorite songs on the album. It was certainly a favorite live. The guitar attack, not just the the solos at the end of the song, but the the acoustic strumming that goes throughout the first couple of verses. It just drives it all the way through. Yeah, this is one of those classic narratives that he creates. And I totally agree with you about the live versions of the song, especially. And I know you're going to be like, oh, you're bringing up St. Louis again. But seriously, the pairing of Backstreets and Gypsy Biker that night, if you haven't heard that archive, go listen to it. That was an incredible pairing of songs talking of taking new and old and putting them together and making a powerful narrative. But the song itself is, as you say, it's it's very hard driving and it's telling the tale of this guy who presumably shed blood in Iraq and, and now people are all trying to make their own bones off of it. Right. And some of the key lines in this one about are to the dead, it, it don't matter much about who's wrong or right. And about this whole town has been rousted, which side you on? Yeah. It's that shows talks about the divisiveness that was going on at the time of, of the Iraqi war. And certainly the fact that no matter who won to the dead, they're still just gone. And that's that's actually a pretty it's a pretty sad, pretty sad thing to think about. You know, and I hate to keep bringing up this whole, oh, how it applies to 2020. But think of the line <laughs> to them that threw you away. You ain't nothing but gone as we're sitting here and over 200,000 people are dead from COVID, I mean, am I wrong about that? No, not at all. Not at all. He's trying to talk about, or he's trying, or he's describing that the profiteers on Jane Street, you know, they, if they can sell some shoes and clothes and then you'll just be, you're nothing but gone when, when, you know, something happened to you. Right. And, and really, I think most of what he's saying, the larger point in this record is that these things repeat. It's all a cycle. And, and it was happening then. It's happening now. It'll probably, unfortunately, happen again in the future. And that's why he was singing about it, to, to talk about these things that happen again and again and again. And as I think tying it into Broadway and his message there, that somewhere out there, there's a better country in all of our hearts that he hopes we're going to find. And, and that, to me, is really what magic is all about. I mean, not to be too obvious or anything, but some of the conditions surrounding or the conditions of the environment surrounding the Iraqi war in 2005 or 2006 certainly mirror those of Vietnam in, in the late 60s and early 70s. So in which he he lived through as a, as a potential draftee. Yeah. And we can talk about how the album is sequenced because there is. An interesting transition here between Gypsy Biker and Girls in Their Summer Clothes, because and I think we're going to talk about that one in a moment, of course. But the that song, I don't know if it has the same political undercurrent. And we should talk about how it fits in coming after Gypsy Biker. OK, well, I'm interested in hearing your take on that. I mean, I don't I always thought it was it was an unusual segue. And and certainly the fact that he paired Summer Clothes with I Work For Your Love kind of gives it a little bit bit of a kind of a love a love song uh back to back maybe that is all it is maybe at this point on the record he's pausing from these other intense issues to focus on the interpersonal well and what i hear in the song is is an old man he's looking at these young girls and in some ways it's about death and and mortality that's interesting because i don't know that if i see the old man i definitely see a man who's at least probably around our ages and who <laughs> it seems like has just come out of a, a relationship and is upset about it. If you think about the line, she went away, she cut me like a knife. I think that solidifies what I'm referring to, that the, the character in the song has just lost something. And then the next lines are, 
uh, had a beautiful thing. Maybe you just saved my life speaking to the girl who's in front of him now with just a glance. So I, I don't know if the character's old, but I do think it is someone who has some life on them, who's had this relationship, lost it. And now just this little glance from maybe this cute waitress is giving them a surge. And, and again, taking it back to Radio Nowhere is, uh, you know, proving that someone is alive out there. Okay. Well, I, I, well, I like the, the line right after the one you just talked about, about loves the fool's dance. I ain't got much sense, but I still got my feet. So he's saying, well, I've, I've been around a time or two, and maybe I'm not that smart, but, you know, I can still dance, and I will still dance the, the, the dance of love. In many ways, it's similar to Tougher Than the Rest. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, and a lot of songs, I mean, how many Bruce songs are there where it's, he's gotten out of some kind of relationship and he's looking to move on somehow? I think that's yeah. what three quarters of Western stars. <laughs> and let's talk about the, the music here, because this really is a very lush pop song. And we know that Brendan O'Brien helped bring that out. Bruce has spoken about that. Uh, he even said that Brendan turned it into a pop diamond. But there's something about it is so lushly orchestrated. And when they played it live, I, I never thought at the beginning of the tour, they really got it right. More towards the end of the tour, I felt like they were closer. But this is one of those rare times where I think the studio track does exceed the live performance. And it's because of how how layered and how lush it is. Right. It's got to be done very tightly. And it's as you said, there's a lot of layers to it. Uh, and you can't always do that on stage. I mean, yeah, there, there, there can be a big band at times. They can have, what, 10 people in them. But at the same time, you can't layer, you know, you can't, can't have five Susies going at one time. No. And so that's how this, that's why this one really works uh, better on the record, as you said. I think the other thing that's notable for me is there's a real sense of longing in this song. Don't, you would agree with that, right? Oh, absolutely. I my, my first take on the song is about an older aging man looking at young girls and yeah it's kind of a creepy longing but it's a it's a longing uh, nonetheless <laughs> you see i don't know if i as i said i don't know if i fully agree with that i think there's a more innocent view of of how the song is unfolding and i definitely agree as i said that the guy is sitting there he's lost his girl and the girl who's in front of him now, who's clearly younger is filling a role, but I, I don't know. You may be uh, playing it out a little bit more. And remember when Bruce wrote this, he was only in his mid fifties. <laughs> okay. Well, I would go with another less creepy interpretation for, for me just could be that he's looking at these, at these younger girls, but he knows he's too old for them. And so of course they're going to pass him by or they're, he's too old for them to notice. To me, it's a sweet song, you know, so very sweet song. And, and I think it's got a sweetness to it. So I was maybe taking from the interpretation you were just giving that that wouldn't really be as sweet as I make it out to be. Well, you know, you, you can hear different things and different songs at different times. So, yeah. you know, I'm just looking at, the narrator seems to be older than than the girls who are passing him by, and it doesn't take much to go from uh, from an older man creeping on on young girls. I didn't say he talked to them; I just said he was looking. You know, I'm just much more of a, a romantic. I think. Oh yes, you are, Hal. Romance—that's your middle name, isn't it? Exactly. <laughs> so, and speaking of romance, it's a perfect segue to the next track, which is "I'll Work for Your Love," and I. Agree with that sentiment. You should work for your girl's love. But oh, here, but here, much differently than Living in the Future for me, this is another song with a classic E Street sound opening with Roy's piano. But to me, it works much better than Living in the Future. And, and obviously, there's a lot of religious imagery in this song. It appears that he, the character's in a bar, uh, what, which is a, shock. A, a nice segue from uh, Girls in Their Summer Clothes. And he's basically telling the, the, the girl who's serving him drinks that everyone else out there, they're not willing to put the work in, but I am. And it's he is then transitioned, as he often does with songs, where the song has been played, I think, in recent years, where it, he's speaking to the audience. He's working for our love. Right. Well, it's also, I like to point out that it's one of the songs that, since this tour, since the since the Magic and even working on the Dream Tours, that he's mostly played it in solo acoustic arrangements. And so that really 
strips everything away and it just it, it becomes more of a of a song to the audience as you as you said yeah and this was a song that in terms of the full band arrangement on the magic tour was not played very often uh, again i don't know if it was because some of these songs were just a little too complicated to play as we noted girls in their summer clothes it, it took a little time i think to get right they never played your own worst enemy very much they never played this one very much and and those are some of the more lush songs on the record. So maybe that had something to do with it. But this is a tremendously effective song. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And and you're right about the going for that E Street sound. In the and as we always talk about in Brian Hyatt's book, uh, Roy said, or I guess it was Bruce rather who said that it sounds so E Street, and he, he usually shies away from that. But but this time he he went with it, and I think it it really works. And in terms of the religious imagery, like in the second verse, I love the line, the pages of Revelation lie open in your empty eyes of blue. I mean, <laughs> yeah, it, he's, it's, it's he's got going. it's got a burning sort of essence to it. But he's it's also, of course, a biblical rever, uh, reference. Well, you got the, you got the stations of the cross. You got a sun lifting a halo uh, her, her, at her lips, a crown of thorns. And of course, the rosary at your feet, my temple of bones. I mean, this is almost like is every 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 image from his Catholic upbringing that he could he could pour into one song. Now again, it's it's hard to see. We went from Gypsy Biker, we went to Girls in Their Summer Clothes. Now we're in I'll Work for Your Love. In a way, if you relate them all back to Radio Nowhere and the thesis of is there anybody alive out there, and I just want to feel your rhythm, these songs make total sense because again, this is a song I think. If you took the line, I just want to feel your rhythm. I mean, that thematically is contained pretty much in every line of I'll work for your love. <laughs> you are 100 percent correct. And it, that's, you know, it, it's a, more of a love song. It's not like Gypsy Biker. It's not like Magic or the other subsequent songs. So it's kind of stands out, but it definitely fits the theme, the theme of of the album. This album is really put together very well, as we were saying, and and it, you know that continues now into the title track, "Magic," which opens with that ominous keyboard. I don't even know how you describe it. I don't have the right words. I just spooky. know that the the spooky is probably right. the The sound of it just nails the feel that he was going for. It sort of unsettles you. Unsettling is probably the best word. All right, yeah, very much so. And I, I was always struck by the fact that Jeremy Chotsky was the one who played played bass on this song and not Gary. I always wondered how that came about, but it is a very spooky song. And, it, and if you want to talk about a lyric that, and I know it's not original to him, but or at least the thought's not, but something that relates to today more than ever is, you know, trust, of, trust none of what you hear and even less of what you see. Yes. And uh, that's, I mean, you know, at he, that point, he, we, we were just, we were just talking about finding weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. And now it's, it seems like it's literally everything. <laughs> this is a song about redefining truth and, and, and obscuring fact. And, <laughs> you know, I don't, I don't want to just keep saying the same thing over and over again, but it's <laughs> 2020. Very much so. Very much so. And I always, it was always creepy, the I mean, scary, spooky, unsettling, whatever word you want to put about the freedom that you saw. It's drifting like a ghost amongst the trees. And then there's bodies hanging in the trees. This is what will be. And that's that always kind of reminded me of a little bit of The Stand from Stephen King about the about the Vegas side of the story after after the plague. And I even hear a little bit of of the road in there, the Cormac McCarthy book yeah. that that I read basically because of of this album. <laughs> and it was just it's just interesting that kind of dystopian feel that that these songs really have. Oh my God, yes. And you know, we talked about it a little bit when Brian Hyatt was on the show. Brendan O'Brien originally wanted to title the the album "Long Walk Home," and Bruce was like it's going to be called magic and we're not talking about it again. <laughs> and that's and, the end of it. <laughs> and that's the end of it. And to this day, I mean, look, long walk home would have made complete sense for this record. And long walk home is a much more hopeful song. This song does not have a lot of hope in it. 
And I think that's that's ultimately why Bruce's reaction, what it was. This is the title track. You know, this is this is what I'm singing about here, even as it all because, of course, Radio Nowhere could have could have been a title track. But this is what he was singing about. And and the central thesis, trust none of what you hear and less of what you see. That is, I think, one of the main things he wants you to take away from this record. Right. And. Again, going back to Hyatt's book, Bruce is quoted as saying these last four songs are the text of the record, whereas the first first seven or so were the subtext. And I was thinking about that the other night when I was listening. Like, like the crux of the album is really magic through Devil's Arcade. And yes. He really kicks That's it off true, here. That's true for sure. He really kicks it off here. He, I mean, it t- changes the whole tone of the album, I think. Uh, the spookiness from... Going from the almost the poppiness of I'll work for your love to this, you know, as we said, spooky, unsettling kind of feel to these songs. And of course, the lyrics go so much darker, as as I was quoting about the bodies in the trees. And yeah, it's a this is when the, the real album takes place. Now, interestingly, I do think this was another song that was not as effective live. They never really nailed this live. And if I recall properly, at some point, it basically got dropped entirely, right? Yes, it did. I think uh, sometime early in 2008, it was no longer an every-nighter. And then certainly it disappeared when he when he hit this hit that short stadium run uh, later, um, not in the States anyway. I think it even disappeared in Europe. But to as to your point that it didn't quite work as well live, I, ha- I have to agree. I think... He didn't play. He didn't play the, or he didn't have Danny or Roy play that spooky organ intro, keyboard intro, and I, that would have been something that I would like to have seen him, seen them try to do, and maybe even, I know I, I probably shouldn't say this, but to bloat that one out a little bit, let let Danny or, or Roy have a little fun uh, soloing. I definitely thought that was missing too, and the song just it didn't seem to have the same impact with just whether he was doing it really him and Patty or on the nights that Patty wasn't there, he did it with Susie. So it, it's just one of those things that again, you know, this was a song that was put together very carefully, I think in the studio and, and maybe they couldn't fully emulate it live. Well, I think one, one reason for that, and this is again, all theory is that he had done that. He had, he had this, the, that acoustic song early in the show with uh, mansion on the hill or or, or was the other sky. one empty sky and and oh. right well i was thinking about the reunion tour it was what oh factory or mansion on the hill on the reunion and then on the rising it was empty sky as you said so i think he was trying to continue that whereas it didn't quite work because it needed more of the of the full band it was very sparse, and it, we'll, we're going to talk more about the Magic Tour at a later date, and I think that's going to be a good conversation because it really was an amazing tour, and there's so much to talk about there. So we'll leave most of that conversation <laughs> until then. All right, but that makes, fair, just, enough, just, fair enough. Just, just an outstanding track in a, lo- in a run of outstanding tracks. And, and, of course, the song that comes up next, which is Last to Die, is yet another. <laughs> yeah, this is well. This was also part of that ending, ending five pack on that on that on that tour. Uh, last to die into uh, Long Walk Home into Badlands, and this is another one where it's a very dystopian picture that he's that he's painting with the lyrics. And well, I, I got to say, I, I love the song, but that's not exactly a, a shocker to anybody. Yeah, I found that it was. Funny that Brendan told Brian Hyatt that maybe the song wound up a little too over the top and they should have reined it in. I never actually really thought that. The song, it is hard hitting and it certainly presents some challenging themes and and some disturbing images, but the song works really well. And, And yes, it is a hard driving rocker, but to me, this is a much more uh, effective song than something like living in the future. This is a song, of course, that draws on some real life circumstances. Who'll be the last to die is a question that John Kerry asked during the time of the Vietnam War. Here, Bruce is transitioning that to the Iraq War, and it, it's a very dark song. There's no question about it. And you and you look at some of the lyrics. The kids asleep in the back seat. We're just counting the miles. You and me. We don't measure the blood we've drawn anymore. We just stack the bodies outside the door, <laughs> you know. Well, and again, that's uh, that's a, a verse that can apply to today, 
a matter of fact, I've had that that couplet stuck in my head uh, more often more often than I probably would like in in, in the recent months. Yeah, it's no I, look. One of the reasons why we decided to talk about magic now, of course, we've got the election coming up. There's everything that's going on in the country. It did seem very relevant, but you know, again, this album was written. <laughs> some of it was written in 2003, and most of it probably otherwise dates to late 2006, maybe early 2007. <laughs> and we're in 2020, but that is what Bruce is doing, as we all know, and that's why people are listening to us, and that's why we're all listening to his music. He is documenting the American. Experience experience. And he, as I said, it, it unfortunately repeats. He documented the American experience and, and it's repeating again now in, in, as a cycle. Yeah. History may not repeat, but it often rhymes. Yeah. And that's what's that's what's happening now. And that's one of the reasons, as you said, Bruce's music keeps keeps drawing us back. Have you ever considered the song to be too hard hitting? Never. <laughs> yeah, and this was uh, this was a song. Uh, this song was great live. Yes, and it was. and I, and again, it, this is one of those ones that has sort of disappeared since the Magic Tour. It's been played a few times, but nowhere near as much as something like Long Walk Home or, of course, Radio Nowhere. Well, it it was it was brought back at the end of the Working on a Dream tour. I guess in that like in October, November, a little bit played again at towards the end of the show or actually and paired right with long walk home again. So he was kind of, even in 2009, he was kind of replicating some of the replicating that little trio. If you include the rising and I guess enforce them, if, if you throw in Badlands, So that was a heck of a heck of a sequence he had going on in 2007 to 2008. And it worked and it worked again in 2009. It led in in the live show to Long Walk Home. It leads in on the record to Long Walk Home. We just talked a little about Long Walk Home because of the London Seeger show being released. And you talk about quintessential Springsteen songs. And I don't even know if we realized at the time what an important song Long Walk Home was. I think I certainly realize it now. And I, and I assume you feel the same way. Oh, I, I agree 100%. And I felt... At the time, it was kind of a long walk home back to the East Street Band after after taking a couple of detours the previous two years. And as we talked about from the London version, he did tone it down on this record. I mean, the London version talked about murder in my soul. That That is omitted here on Magic. But I think that the song just hits such an important note and he probably felt that wasn't needed. And, and, and I think he was probably right because the key lines here and, and everyone knows what they are. Uh, your flag <laughs> is fly, your flag flying over the courthouse means certain, certain things are set in stone, who we are, what we'll do and what we won't. I mean, that is, uh, and again, uh, just tying it into our current times, who we are, what we'll do and what we won't. I mean, that is a question I think, many Americans ask themselves every day right now. Unfortunately, yes. And yeah, I think the verse you cited from, from the London 2006 performance definitely took it uh, to a much darker place. And then, and obviously the song needs to be uplifting and we can't talk, we can't be talking about murder, murder in our hearts when we're trying to say, we need to get back to where, where this country or where we need to be as to follow the American ideals. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And, and ideals is the right word. This is an idealistic song. And I think when you're singing from that mode, you probably shouldn't be talking about the murder, you know, murder <laughs> in your soul. Uh, no. and, and, and it made it a more effective song. And, and this song, in every arrangement, the E Street Band arrangements from the Magic Tour and beyond, the solo acoustic version he did uh, on the 2016 tour. And of course it was in the Broadway show until it was dropped for Jode. And it, I, I actually, I found at the time when, when we saw Broadway and long walk home was still in the show, I thought it was one of the highlights of the entire show. Oh, I, I agree with you a hundred percent, but in Broadway, this, it could have been one of the situations where it was just too non subtle, too over the top. And to, to take out this one and replace it with Jode, which is a little bit more, more subtle. It's not coming at you. It's not beating you over the head with it. Not that this song's beating you over the head with it, but in Broadway, it certainly could have be could have been read that way or heard that way. And remember, that change was made 
on the battle over immigration and, and the children being put in cages and stuff like that. And and he made that speech that one night that the first night where he did showed where he said, you know, I've done the same set every night and I haven't varied what I've said, but I'm doing so tonight because I think it's important. And he played Jode and, and then he left Jode in the show for that, for the entire rest of the run. Maybe you're right there. I was surprised when Bruce on Broadway came out. And of course they added in a couple of the extra songs for for that performance, he did Long Time Coming, which wasn't a part of the regular show. I was really surprised Long Walk Home was not there. Yeah, and I would add on Disappointed, too. I mean, I I love the song, and I love the performance of it. I just, I'm just saying that from his perspective, including it on Broadway was a little bit too too over, too over the top. It's a wonderful track, and, and in a way because it came later in his career, probably doesn't get as much exposure as perhaps it would have had this been on one of the bigger earlier records. You know, if, the, if, 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 if Long Walk Home was on Darkness, where it probably fit and it was played next to Badlands for many, many nights, I, I think that Long Walk Home would be a, a staple in the catalog. Well, I think it is a reunion era classic i mean i it's made it's in the top five songs of the last 20 years well it's it's tough and we're about to get to a song that i also think is a reunion era classic and is just such a highly emotional track but i i agree i don't know where i would put it i mean certainly long walk home is up there the rising is up there it's hard to distill it to just five, I, I think. But <laughs> well, I was just talking. I was just going off the top of my head. I didn't. I, yeah. I don't have a top five list but of Union Era songs. I bet you do. <laughs> no, I don't. I'm not a list keeper. Oh, okay. Definitely, it's up there. I mean, it's it, it, it's an amazing piece of work, and and I think that. He, he feels that the way he utilizes the song. And uh, I'm not going to be surprised if we hear it again in the near future. If he does anything over the next month uh, on the campaign, well, the virtual campaign trail for, for Joe Biden, I would imagine this would be you know, one of the two songs with Land of Hope and Dreams being the other one that, that he would he would take a shot at. So, yeah, I'd, I'd be surprised if we don't hear, to, hear it in the next four weeks. Yeah. Uh, so, and let's move on to the last track of the official record, which is Devil's Arcade, as we spoke about earlier. And to me, this is just an, one of the long history of devastating closing tracks on Springsteen Records. We talked a little about it with Western Stars and Moonlight Motel. Of course, there's Wreck on the Highway. There's Valentine's Day. This one may pack the biggest wallop of all. I mean, what a track this is. And it, it just every time I hear it, and I heard it last night when I listened to the record again, it just grabs me in a way. To me, this is the best song on the record. Obviously, this is a record with a lot of great songs, but for me, it, it closes on its highest note. This is this is brilliant stuff. Well, it, this is a song where after talking about living in the future, talking about who will be the last to die, this takes all of that, all that political kind of talk and 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 makes it personal. And yes. that's when that's when Bruce Bruce is is at his best. You know, I mean on the Nebraska album he was talking obviously that was all about not all about but mo- mostly about the Carter recessions. And but it, but he wasn't saying, "Oh, well the government's doing this or the government's doing that." It was I lost the guy Ralph lost his job at the at the, at the auto plant downtown or, wherever, or whatever the line is from uh, from Johnny 99. He was telling it about an in, about individual people and that's what he's doing here. Yeah, and that's why it works in the same manner that something like Moonlight Motel did, where, as we know, he the guy is sitting in the parking lot back at the motel where he met his love, and she's gone, and he's thinking back on his life. And this connects in, in a lot of the same way. Here's a character who's been through hell, comes home trying to make a connection. It really could be. This could be the character in Moonlight Motel three decades earlier. Hmm. It's interesting. I hadn't I had not thought of it that way. To me, I so I haven't really figured out what the song, how the soldier in this song is. Whether he's whether he's been, he's obviously not hasn't been killed, but he no. I don't, but he's not he's not whole either. So oh, he's definitely not whole. No way. Yeah. Right. So like I I have memories of um, going. In, I was in Silver Spring, Maryland, just down the just down the street from. Um, Walter Reed, when it was a military hospital, I remember seeing some of the guys 
out to dinner with their girlfriends and they were missing missing limbs and the girlfriends had to help them and or wives and that's how I that's how I that's what I think of every time I, I hear this song. To me, the the key lines come when he says, uh, "Rising from a long night as dark as the grave." That's obviously symbolic of a man who's been through a lot, and the night is hell. Whether it's whether it's pain or or demons that come uh, during sleep and nightmares, and then like you're up PTS, PTSD. Exactly, and the next line is on a thin chain of next moments and something like faith. Every moment, you're just trying to get to that next moment and 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 live and and find some faith somewhere and of course here it's contained in the touch of the fingers of the woman he's with yeah that last verse is is pretty powerful because he's talking about just trying to make it to the next day as as you said these are just little life simple pleasures that that this person wants to experience and it's it's a little bit difficult when they don't have a lot of faith. No, they certainly don't. And I love how the lyrics move from the beat of your heart to the beat of her heart. And then the slow burning away of the bitter fires of the devil's arcade. From there, it goes into, I, I think, what is probably his greatest reunion era solo. Certainly it was live. The solo that he did at the end of Devil's Arcade that led into Max's drum beat at the end. And I think Max even says in Brian's book that that's his favorite moment uh, of this period. And I think he may say it's one of his favorite moments that he's ever played on ever, but just everything about it is, is sheer perfection. And, 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 you know, again, not to, to overuse a word, but I think he's drawing on and it's intentional, just as we said with Moonlight Motel and some of the other tracks, just it's devastating. It really is, especially when he did it live and, and Max's drum beat continued longer than on the record. It it really had an impact. That final beat of the drum that would just stop short was so dramatic live. And, and of course, then the song would go into the rising and start the end of the set. And again, we're going to talk about that tour <laughs> later and we're going to have a lot to say about it. But this is, I think most songwriters would kill to write one song like this. Of course, he's written so many. <laughs> and to me, I, I go back to the line in Gypsy Biker about this whole town's been rousted. Which side are you on? Just talk about the divisiveness that that occurred during that time. I totally agree, and and that's really where he ties this all together. There's a substantial gap after Devil's Arcade fades out and Terry's song begins because the narrative clearly ends here with Devil's Arcade, as we said a little earlier in the episode. Yeah, it's kind of different for this album. Uh, if only because it's so stripped down. It doesn't have the layers and, and the lushness that so many I Work For Your Love, Girls in the Summer Clothes, even Radio Nowhere have. So it's kind of cut straight to the to the heart of the song in, in yeah. that way. It's a much more tender song, of course, than most of the other stuff on this record, like well, we were just talking about. Well, this is a, a very loving, basically a, a, a yeah, eulogy a, yeah. to, to Terry McGovern and I'm glad they I'm glad they included it. What I do love about it is, and I think this makes it even more meaningful that it was included, even though, of course, we know it's about Terry. It's called Terry's song. He never mentions Terry. And in a way, even though there are lines in the song that certainly are specific to Terry, he also made it a little bit more universal. And 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 I think we've heard this from other people. And I, the, a couple of times he's played it in shows have been after he got He's gotten notes from fans saying, you know, can you play Terry's song for so-and-so who died? And, and it does have a certain universality to it, even though, of course, it was written specifically for Terry. Well, there's the, the two lines. They say you can't take it with you, but I think that they're wrong because all I know, I woke up this morning and something big was gone. And I think that yeah, that missing piece that when someone passes on and they're no longer in your everyday life you're you're gonna you're gonna miss something there's something something will be missing and i think yeah. bruce really captured it really yeah. well in there yes now of course i always thought the line about gone into that dark ether where you're so young and hard and cold he's describing him as cold where it doesn't that never really was the, the word i would use to describe him oh yeah that is interesting but i i don't know maybe Young and hard and cold is really, I think, reflective of someone starting off their life. Probably we all have a little bit of coldness to us. I think it's life experiences that warm you up. <laughs> no, isn't that what he's saying there? Uh, I would have gone the other way where life beats you down. 
one of the reasons why it is universal. I mean, if you if you look at you know lines in the fourth verse, but love is a power greater than death, just like the songs and stories told. I mean, to me, that's the heart of the song here. It, the tales are going to be continue to tales are going to continue to be told about the person they're singing about. And in this case, it's it's Terry. It could be someone else. And 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 I think that that is what makes the song universal. Okay. All right. Although I think those are definitely the key lines of the song, as long as well as what I said about something big was gone. So, and and that brings, I think, our discussion of magic to the end. And uh, yeah, I, we pretty much covered really, it. <laughs> yeah, again, it just sort of stunned me because I haven't listened to this record straight through. One of the reasons why is a, I tend to listen to the shows, and b. And we probably should mention this before we conclude. There was some controversy over the mastering of this record. It sort of fell victim to the loudness wars. And and we even brought this up when Brian was on because he got a great quote from <laughs> Brendan O'Brien. He Brian brought up the fact that this album is often cited as a, a prime offender of the loudness wars. And Brendan was like, yeah, I don't give a shit. <laughs> and then Brian went to Ludwig, who, of course, mastered the record and who is believed to be against the loudness wars. And Ludwig, his answer, I think, tells it all. He's like, look, I just do what the producer and artist told me to do. Right. It's um, it's I guess it's pretty compressed. But at the same time, um, you know, it works for some of these songs like Last to Die. I think I can't imagine Last to Die with a. With a, with a bigger dynamic range, but you know, maybe that's just because I've been listening listening to this version for for thirteen years. I, I think that the vinyl in particular, and I do tend to listen to vinyl, although I haven't listened to this one in a while. Even last night, I listened to it just from my headphones. The vinyl, I think, is pretty much widely regarded as perhaps one of the worst mastered vinyls that uh, uh, since the vinyl revival, that's for sure. That's interesting. And I guess the question would be if they ever go back and, and remaster yeah. it without the loudness wars uh, being such a key part of their of their approach. And but I don't I don't see that happening. I no, think. I, it probably won't. Yeah. Bruce's obviously has been this is the album we're not remixing. We're not remastering anything. This is it. Yeah. And and look, as we said, I mean, overall, I mean, our our feelings is that this is a spectacular record. You know, this loudness war thing is a bit of a sideshow to that, but I did think it should be mentioned, and and I do think there is some merit to it. I can I can see your point, um, and but I don't see I don't see any point in in talking too much about it because some things just won't change. Yeah, it's not going to change. <laughs> no. So should we wrap it up? Let's do it. Here it goes. None But the Brave is a presentation of Bull Market Entertainment. Please subscribe to the podcast on your platform of choice. We're on pretty much all the major ones. If you want to contact us, we can be found on Twitter at NBTB Podcast and on the web, nonebutthebravepodcast.com. So for Hal Schwartz, I'm Flo McLean saying thanks again for listening, and we'll see you further on up the road. Thank you so much. We'll be seeing you. Hey everyone, this is Tuck from Fit for a King, an off-road minivan. Every week I bring you fun interviews alongside your favorite metalcore entertainers with my new podcast, Get Tucked. Join me every Monday with bands like Counterparts, Crystal Lake, like Mods to Flames, and many more. We play unsigned and undiscovered bands, deep dive into each artist's history, and of course provide the greatest breakdowns in current metalcore. Tune in to Get Tucked every Monday, out now through Sound Talent Media.